Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast. Martin Kelly is our guest. He is the co-author of Rickenbacker Guitars, Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire Glow. We'll sort of figure out what all that means if uh, if you stay tuned. I really enjoyed the book. It's about this 90-year-old business that makes musical instruments. So there's certainly lots of stories to tell. Uh, it's incredible, incredible photographs in this book and lots of research. So super well done. Uh, but it also, to me, is a little bit deeper just because of how the story parallels um, or tells the story of so many innovations and changes in all of the American um, business world, in the American society, uh, in the development of American industry, you know, things like world wars and uh, electricity getting not just into cities and patents and people moving to the West Coast and all these things sort of conspire to make this business grow. Very kind of interesting look way to look at uh, American history. Anyways, I found the whole book super interesting. Of course, it is mostly just about these guitars. It's really not a history book, but I don't know. I'm stuck on that for some reason. Uh, d- uh, what can I tell you? Some interesting guests probably coming up. Check WFMU.org slash Michael for the list, and I uh, hope you're having a good summer. I will talk with you soon. Okay, the new book is called Rickenbacker Guitars Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire Glow, and the authors are UK-based brothers Martin and Paul Kelly, and Martin joins me this morning on the phone. Good morning, Martin. How are you? Hi, Michael. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm lovely. The book is amazing. It's 300 pages plus, and it is, this this phrase is used a lot, but lavishly illustrated is, is very correct here and it's very thoroughly and thoughtfully researched it really seems to be a labor of love is that correct yeah it really it really really was i mean i'm a big guitar fan and um i was approached by john hall uh the ceo of rickenbacker with the idea of making the book after he'd seen a book i'd written on fender guitars and it was an honor to be asked really so but it became my lockdown project and I pretty well spent every day of lockdown writing it, and it was it was a lot of work. It was a lot more than I expected. Yeah, well, it definitely shows. Uh, I think somewhere in the book it says something like, uh, and you can correct me on this, something like since 1932, the first commercially uh, available electric guitar. Straighten me out on that, and what's the, the timeline on what other guitars were available when? Okay, so Rickenbacker were the first to take an electric guitar to market in 1932, which is exactly 90 years ago. And other people had been dabbling, trying to make an electric guitar by kind of putting a microphone inside a guitar. And, but none of those experiments were satisfactory and no one had actually brought one to market. But uh, the two guys that set the company up, there was a guy called George Beecham, who came up with the idea, and his partner, Adolf Rickenbacker, and they set up to make this guitar, and it was, you know, it was revolutionary at the time, completely revolutionary. Yeah. It's very interesting, because when I think of just the word Rickenbacker, my first thought is 
the Beatles or the Birds, but the history that leads up to that sort of turning point in the company's history is super fascinating, and the book goes into it. Adolf Rickenbacker started off making stuff, I think you say in the book, chess pieces and toothbrush handles, and uh, eventually he started making parts for national guitars, etc., etc. So how much was, because I think I read something like in the early 30s, a guitar was about $175, which is a fortune. It's like almost 10 times that. Staggering, yeah. You could buy, you could have bought a small car for for that or a motorcycle, you know, for that amount of money. Um, It was a staggering amount of money. And uh, it was one of the reasons it was slow to take off because there weren't many musicians around who could afford that type of investment. And very quickly, all the other makers saw what they were doing and dived in on the act. So it took them years to get the patent uh, because the patent office didn't believe that this thing could actually work. And so uh, in the end, they had to go and demonstrate. They took some Hawaiian musicians to the patent office in Washington and uh, sat there and played it for them. So they could actually go, yeah, that works. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it was pioneering times. Exactly how many guitars did you and your brother photograph for the book? Because, like I said, it's it's truly lavish. Yeah, it, we, we photographed around 600, and about 350 made the cut. So, so we really wanted to cover every model. You know, I don't think we, we take these projects on lightly, so I, I'm a big believer in making, if you do something do it definitively yeah well that's clear what do you think makes them unique unique because they they look unique they sound unique is it the electronics is it the shapes is it the way they are designed something we can't see is it the, that many of them are semi-acoustic and have a, a little hole in the body is it some combination of all that is this is it something we don't know yeah i think i think the sound um the brickbackers have a particular chime and I think uh, a lot of that is down to the uh, pickups that were designed by FC Hall. And uh, he, he designed these quite unique sounding pickups that have a chime. And they certainly have a look that's all of their own, mm. which is uh, down to um, a German designer called Roger Rossmeisel, who um, really gave them their look and image during the 1950s. So all the guitars that we know from the Beatles and the Birds era and and Tom Petty, all, all of those were designed by uh, uh, Roger Rossmeisel. In 1953, Adolf Rickenbacker sold the company to FC Hall, who you just mentioned, for $100,000. And his son, as you mentioned, still runs the company yeah. today. One thing the book shows guitar amps and steel guitars and electric mandolins and banjos and psychedelic lighting that Rickenbacker made, all kinds of other things the uh, company produced. I think it's kind of interesting. Do you know, can you put your finger on why the amps sort of never caught on and how are they looked at now in history? Some of the Rickenbacker amps, particularly the late 60s transistor amps, are really sought after because they were made to a really high spec. But um, the amplifier market was very, very competitive. And I think Fender and Gibson really, really had the stronghold there. And I don't think Rickenbacker were ever able to prize that away from them. Uh, One of my favorite things in the book 
something I just had no idea existed. There's a lot of sort of off-brand guitars that Rickenbacker manufactured, sort of cheaper ones. But my favorite is this thing called the Astro, which they made in 63, 64. It is $19.95, and it's basically a guitar that kids get to put together themselves and then play. Did were Because there's a bunch of them in the book. Were, did you play one? Are, are they any good? Yeah, they're, they're, they're quite basic. But, you know, they were a lot of fun. They were like, you know, I guess it was the era when kids were making a lot of model plastic model kits and everything came in kit form. And, you know, they just figured it would be fun to make a kit that a kid could assemble. And um, they're now very, very rare. So we... We, we we managed to find a few which we've included in the book, but yeah, they're they're, they're great. Do you have any idea what they're worth these days? I think they would make a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars if you if anyone out there's got one. <laughs> great investment, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the Beatles for a second, because I believe the book says Lennon, John Lennon bought one 1960 in Hamburg. A few years later, seventy three million people saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Roger McGuinn saw the film Hard Day's Night, made him want to go out and buy one. I think it's impossible to overstate the importance that the Beatles have in helping the company just market its guitars. The book goes into this. Uh, Is it possible to quantify the increase in percentage the company had post-Beatles? Oh, it was massive. You know, these sales went through the roof. I think they had to employ four or five times the number of staff, you know, just in a matter of a few months. The Beatles' appearance on Ed Sullivan alone kind of blew up the American guitar industry. Fender suddenly had back orders of 30,000 guitars and no one could keep up. Suddenly every kid in America and all across Europe and the Far East too. Everyone wanted to play an electric guitar. It, 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 you know, I, I often wonder if Rickenbacker might have carried on to exist if, if the Beatles hadn't played them. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, one interesting thing is the twelve string. It seems such a Rickenbacker. It's so uh, the name and and the twelve string guitar are so fused together. Who else was making twelve strings then? And what what was the competition like? Okay, a few companies had had dabbled with them. Dan Electro and and Vox in the UK had both made electric twelve strings, but somehow Rickenbacker just they Rickenbacker were perhaps the third company to make one, but just by they gifted the second one they'd ever made, the second prototype as it were, they gifted that to George and they couldn't George Harrison sorry, and uh, they could not have put that in a better pair of hands so um that suddenly gave them the you know all the market share for electric 12s yeah and in some of those mid-period beatles records that rickenbacker 12 string is one of the most memorable kind of signature sounds on some of those songs yeah a ticket to ride um if i needed someone that opening chord on a hard day's night you know that's that's a pure Rickenbacker 12-string sound. Yeah. Did the company give away many guitars to musicians? Was that part of the strategy? They did a few, but not as many as their rivals were. <laughs> so there's a couple of little quotes in the book there, you know, where some of the sales reps are saying, like, look, Fender are giving everybody free guitars. We've got, we've got to do this a bit more. But they did, they did give a few, you know, especially the Beatles. Um, the Beatles had uh, eight Rickenbackers, which is quite staggering. I think they only have a, had about 25 guitars, and eight of them were Rickenbackers. So. 
often in these kind of stories, there is a lot of boom and bust and I don't know, sometimes gangsters or people gambling away fortunes or making ridiculously bad bets that look dumb in historical hindsight. But this story about this company, like we said, the same companies run it for quite a long time. There wasn't really that much, uh, but they must have had some struggles. After the the boom of the mid-60s, by the late 60s, uh, guitar sales had gone through the floor. They were really down. They were low. There were suddenly a lot of second-hand guitars around, and um, guitar sales were down. So they they had slimmed their workforce right down. And then this kind of weird thing happens. This electric bass that they've they've made suddenly out of nowhere starts taking off because Paul McCartney had been given one in '65, but never really publicly used it. And then when he comes out with wings, suddenly he's there playing this Rickenbacker bass. And suddenly the sales start ramping up again. Uh, Chris Squire from Yes adopts the same bass. And then Geddy Lee from Rush. So suddenly all their sales go from like 12 strings uh, that and 6 strings they're making in the 60s. Suddenly it's all basses in the 70s. So they had a, they had a renaissance period then. And they've, they've been going strong ever since. Yeah, it is interesting. Some people know them as a base manufacturing yeah. company. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's the ma- major um, share of their output today is uh, a basis. Uh, so, how many do you know? Do they make these days? Do you know how big the companies in terms of guitar sales were? They sort of stack up. I think they're back ordered. Uh, I think if you want a Rickenbacker, you've got to order it and you've got to wait for you know a year. So I think they can make as many as they they want to make. You know, it's still a very popular brand. Hmm. The title of the book, which is Rickenbacker Guitars, Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire Glow. The frying pan was the very first guitar, and it does sort of look very primitively like a frying pan. And fire glow is the way of painting the guitars, I guess, the color scheme that is sort of very identifiable with Rickenbacker Guitars. Who came up with that way of painting guitars? Who invented it? How did it evolve? What's the process? That, that was that was Roger Ross Meisel again, the guy who was... Uh, designed who designed all these iconic classic shapes uh, that Rickenbacker are famous for, and um, he'd learnt that art of spraying guitars in that way um, in Germany, and uh, in the, it, during the war actually, and in, just in the post-war years, and brought a lot of his skills to bear whilst he was at Rickenbacker, and those those paint finishes were quite unique in America at that time. Yeah, they're gorgeous. The book is is full of great pictures. It's funny because sometimes you see very rarely like a blue Rickenbacker guitar, and although they're beautiful, somehow they don't quite fit in. No, yeah, they they experimented with a few blues and greens, but that you know we put those in there to to uh, you know just to break up the uh, you know the flow. But uh, what they did, you know, with the fire glow and everything, it just became iconic, and it's it's their their standard thing, you know. Yeah, uh, is there a website folks should visit who want more information about the book? Yeah, um, you can visit um, uh, Phantom Books, which is www w.phantombooks.com and uh, you'll see the book there and you you can see and look inside the book and learn everything about it there. Do you have a favorite song that features the Rickenbacker favorite recording? I think it would have to be a bird song. I reckon probably 8 miles high. 
Great. Let's hear that now. Martin Kelly, thank you for joining us this morning. The book is called Rickenback Guitars Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire Glow. Your brother, Paul, and you, congratulations. It's really something, and like I said at the very top, uh, clearly a, a labor of love. So congratulations. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Some living, some standing alone 